This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The House Armed Services Committee will wait until Labor Day after Labor Day to start its markup on the National Defense Authorization Act. According to Politico, that's the latest start to an NDAA in recent history. Hask Chairman Adam Smith said earlier this year the markup would push to fall if the Biden administration's budget request was late. 37 defense industrial-based companies are recovering from breaches because of the SolarWinds hack. Deputy Principal Cyber Advisor for the Defense Department Rear Admiral William Chase says those companies gave the department 44 different reports. FedScoop reports Chase testified to Congress CMMC Level 5 security could have stopped the attacks if it had been in place when the hack happened. Eight Air Force bases will compete to become the next bases for the KC-46 Pegasus refueling plane. The aircraft will replace active-duty KC-135s at one of six active-duty bases and three reserve bases. The Air Force says the new aircraft will replace old ones at eight active-duty bases and two reserve bases. President Biden's nominee to become the Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller, Mike McCord, will have a big say in the structure of the department after the end of the Chief Management Office. The CFO office will see lots of action, too, as budget season starts. Mark Easton's former Deputy Chief Financial Officer at the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense in the, the uh, Defense Department. Mark, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. What's your sense of what has changed dramatically since Mike was there in 2016? What will be new to him as he steps back into that office? I think, uh, Francis, first of all, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's delightful to be back uh, and uh, give me a chance to talk about some of my favorite subjects, albeit looking out from, uh, uh, looking in from the uh, outside. That's why I appreciate programs like yours. Uh, Mike, will, Mike was responsible for uh, working with us to setting up the structure for the audit. Uh, he's clearly a professional in the budget area uh, he learned a lot, I think, working together to be able to position the next team, uh, Comptroller Norquist, for example, to be able to move forward for the audit. He'll be coming back. Probably the biggest change that he will see is the capability that we built, very much related to the audit uh, for data. Uh, you know, we developed a, a repository uh, initially intended for uh, to support the audit. Uh, we found it to be particularly useful for supporting many, many other kinds of uh, elements of operations so that we could get demonstrate value from the audit as well. So that's the key change. Uh, I look forward to him really being able to capitalize on that. What are some of the areas of operation where you found the benefits of the data that you were collecting to drive the audit? The, 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 the audit, uh, intent, it covers all kinds of elements of the um, uh, of operations. And so I think you've had guests on in the past that have highlighted uh, areas to be able to provide. The data provides uh, enterprise visibility, I think, for the first time. We've always had visibility, but they've always been in pieces. Mm -hmm. The kind of enterprise visibility has allowed us to do a better job identifying inventory uh, issues uh, as the auditors look and look at that. 
uh, as well as making sure that we have a better sense of budgetary execution. And this is where Mike, I think, is going to be very pleased when he sees the kind of visibility that he has now uh, that he did not uh, have in the past. Um, Alala Jenkins was on the program uh, who's working on these issues for the Navy and the Marine Corps a couple of weeks ago, and she talked about some of the uh, areas of concern that she has. What's your sense of the tools that are necessary and the, the people skills that are involved and so on in improving some of the areas uh, that all of the services have uh, regarding the concerns they're trying to turn around for the audit, Mark? I think that we have the resources that we need. I think that what we need to do is to leverage the experience that we've gained from the first three years of audit. We're getting ready to go into the fourth, uh, the fourth year of uh, of audit. Uh, I think clearly, uh, you know, the systems area. I think Alali mentioned systems as being particularly critical. Uh, again, being able to have that data repository, which is being fed by systems provides us the key to be able to see, you know, what are the deficiencies in those systems, which of those systems needs to uh, be uh, sunsetted and go away sooner. Because clearly the audit is looking for fewer, more capable systems. Uh, that's also efficient from an uh, operational perspective as well. The other thing, uh, as we, we're going to continue to gain benefits from a human capital perspective as we learn. The, the first several years of the audit that we had was really a learning experience, both for management and for the auditors. Admittedly, the auditors have to get a sense of our operations. We have a better understanding now. The key thing that Alali had mentioned, I think, was tone from the top. Uh, as the new team begins to uh, begins to get into place and get comfortable, I think sustaining the kind of uh, sustaining the kind of uh, attention. Uh, to it, this is clearly not the uh, the most important thing that our senior leadership is is dealing with, but uh, it's one of the things that will provide a long term investment for the future. And it certainly, I imagine, sends a message uh, that the administration intends uh, to continue the emphasis on the audit, given that they're bringing somebody back who was so crucial, as you described it, to instituting it, to getting it started in the first place. Yeah, I, I think Mike will have uh, an advantage of knowing the uh, the operation, knowing the building. Uh, he will not be uh, susceptible to what I would characterize as a as a natural learning curve that uh, anyone coming in from the outside. So I think that uh, it's going to be particularly beneficial. Uh, again, I think that the data element, being able to use the data to try to uh, to try to build what we used to refer to and i think you and i had talked about it conceptually earlier as the cfo of the future you had you had mike wecklow and steve Koontz on talking about that uh, i think that if you talk to gao you talk to people staffers on the hill uh, they will say that we are very far along in, in terms of recognizing uh, the value of the uh, of the data in a variety of capacities Mark Easton, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you back on the program. Francis, always a pleasure. Uh, take care. You can find a link to Mike McCord's confirmation hearing at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, a one-year revision to a 10-year Marine Corps plan. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a new iteration of Force Design 2030. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Commandant of the Marine Corps, General David Berger, has the first published update to his Force Design 2030. 
General Berger says divesting legacy systems is only one part of building the service he'll need in nine more years. Colonel James McGinley, U.S. Marine Corps, retired as co-chair of the Marine Corps Affairs Committee at the Navy League. Colonel, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. What's your takeaway from the uh, update to Force Design 2030, sir? Well, good morning, President. I think uh, probably the most important takeaway is the openness that the Marine Corps has shown <clears throat> to innovation. Uh, you see that a lot of that comes out of the immediate exp experimentation uh, and feedback that they're receiving on some of the original proposed changes uh, that, that were um, uh, focused on in uh, the original force design 2030. Uh, so I expect that they will continue to iterate and, I, and will continue to experiment. And some of this will be, uh, as they move forward, a, a continuing feedback loop, a little bit like what you've seen out of Silicon Valley where you have uh, a version 2.0 and a 3.0 uh, it looks as though the Marine Corps is heading toward annual updates so that uh, people will stay abreast of developments as they occur. What do you think the influences will be on each of those future iterations? We talked a little bit before we went on the air and you said the how and the why are what you think are really important here. What are the hows and whys that might influence the way that version 3.0 looks and the way the version 4.0 looks as time goes on, sir? Well, I, I think probably at the most critical part of this is the uh, underlying uh, analysis of the threat. Uh, at, at this point, uh, you'll notice that there are, there's language where it's um, really, really basically lays out the notion of an adversary, uh, a maybe a peer uh, threat or a pacing threat. A, a lot of that is just basically helping people understand that uh, if we are focused on the People's Republic of China, it's uh, the hinge point with uh, the PRC is the uh, Chinese Communist Party. Uh, they are not well linked with the people. And so the most effective capacity to, to um, push for change comes in destabilizing influences, which allow the people uh, to move away from what is uh, essentially one of the most brutal dictatorships uh, that uh, is out there as a continuing threat. That comes back into the threat to the United States uh, across the entire spectrum. You might remember that they wrote, uh, a couple of colonels wrote unrestricted warfare. And what they were thinking is you use not just a whole of government approach, which you hear about in the United States, but uh, every economic lever as well. And so in trying to deal with that, the Marine Corps has to look at, uh, a, and I think it's a very significant, critical inward look, uh, what's our capacity to take on a sophisticated threat that may have uh, a, a real capacity across the electromagnetic spectrum uh, that may be able to interrupt supply lines uh, and that may be able to um, find, fix, locate, and target uh, with long range precision fires a lot of our uh, major platforms, which then requires those platforms to stay out of a threat engagement zone. Uh, and that I think is probably the most significant part of 2030 is uh, how do we adjust current tactics, techniques, and procedures uh, for a very sophisticated long-range threat? Given that the lo that long-range threat has the ability to change on an ongoing basis, 
Should we expect to see maybe written updates to 2030 on an, uh, maybe a more than annual basis? Or does the Marine Corps have the license and the latitude to refine it as time goes on and maybe not publish that as a formal uh, update? Uh, I mean, it, it strikes me that since the, the Chinese government can do whatever it wants whenever it wants, given the nature of its structure, um, that agility that you're talking about there seems to be a, a tremendously important element. I think it is, and I think that um, uh, part of the experimentation is that feedback. Uh, so you take and work through different concepts and then actually take them out the field, try them out, see what works, see what doesn't. Uh, understand that the Marine Corps is probably better structured for uh, skirmishes uh, by their uh, international or geopolitical approach the Chinese Communist Party likes a bullying effect. So the question becomes, how do you take and push back? What can an American command structure, um, particularly what are the options that the president has in that Pacific theater uh, to uh, take and essentially provide enough domination, enough destruction and uh, enough uh, uh, input to show the Chinese people uh, that the course being taken by their government uh, is uh, is essentially unsustainable. And so that's where you see the Marine Corps looking at uh, long-range precision fires itself. And um, what's different there, I think, is uh, the idea, if you've gone back 10, 15 years ago, that Marines were looking at anti-ship missiles, um, and now they very much are and are looking for uh, that kind of uh, support as they change uh, what's um, basically in the inventory uh, to provide an asymmetric threat for Chinese bullying. Uh, we have about 30 seconds left, Colonel. In the context of the idea that you expressed about uh, informing the Chinese people, and, and not necessarily pertinent to this document, but to documents like this in general, is it more important that a document like this demonstrate how the United States wants to deter war or how it intends to win a war, or maybe it's a combination of both? I, I think it's a combination of both. I think that if... Uh, we have pacing threats that understand that we are not accepting a static configuration. Uh, it makes it much more unpredictable and increases the risk of taking action. So ideally, it operates to deter. Uh, in the, in the uh, event that there is a need for U.S. action, typically for, through a geopolitical lens, if the uh, nation commits its army and its air force um, uh, those large muscle moves look very much like the country went to war. Uh, oftentimes the Marine Corps can have a very significant effect, but also allow uh, the interpretation that the president needed options rather than this is uh, heading towards major theater war. And so the, the Marine Corps is uniquely, I think, situated to provide uh, that kind of uh, option for a command structure as well as not have it carry a message that uh, escalates, allows us to respond, but not have the response not be misperceived as an escalation. Colonel, thanks very much for joining me today. It's great to have you on the program. I, I appreciate the opportunity and have a great day. You can find a link to Force Design 2030 at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, one of the oldest budget rules in the book is bunk. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the real story behind the split up of money inside the Pentagon. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Michael Gilday says the Navy can sustain about 300 ships with the budget it has now. One rule to prevent him from getting more money is bunk. According to Seamus Daniels, Associate Director and Associate Fellow for Defense Budget Analysis at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, he's writing about budgeting in Defense One. Seamus, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I like how you get right to the point here. The rule of thirds isn't a rule and never has been. What did you base that statement on, Seamus? Francis, thanks for having me. Um, essentially, if you look back at the defense budget data, uh, going back to the end of, of World War II, uh, you'll see that <laughs> the services have never had an equal share of the budget. Uh, and that's down to a couple of reasons. Um, one, uh, essentially, there is defense-wide funding in the budget for the fourth estate uh, that has been growing significantly. So naturally, you can't have thirds. Um, but when it comes down to it, the defense budget isn't divided equally into thirds among the services because that doesn't make sense strategically. As DOD and the country's defense priorities change, uh, realistically, you have to reallocate the budget to the services uh, that are best equipped to carry out that strategy. You write in this piece, debate on the merits of each service's assets and programs and operationalizing the defense strategy is healthy as long as parochial interests don't distract from the joint effort to achieve the country's defense interests. It sounds to me like you're saying that because you're not seeing that playing out that way as you're watching the defense proce uh, budget process from the outside looking in. Am I reading between the lines too much, Seamus? I think we really have to, with a, with a flat budget or a slightly uh, falling budget top line for DOD uh, when adjusted for inflation, um, naturally, there are going to have to be significant trade-offs made uh, to operationalize and realize the strategy. So it makes sense that you have the services um, going out to make their pitch about why they're best equipped uh, to receive budget for their programs, for their capabilities. Um, we have seen some reports uh, of you know, certain services considering other services capabilities and programs unnecessary or, or uh, duplicative. Um, so I think it makes sense that people need to realize that, you know, naturally as we try to operationalize the new defense strategy and the buying team is creating their own defense strategy, there'll be changes among the services and their budget share. And we may see changes among who receives the most, uh, the greatest share of the defense budget. How will you measure the way those changes happen? Is it too early to think about it in the 2022 budget request, given that the Biden team's only been in office since January? Or is, is 2022 kind of a, a holding pattern? We'll see a national defense strategy theoretically within the next year, and then we'll see the 2023 budget request a year from now and really see meat on the bones of what the Biden administration intends strategy and budget-wise. You've got that exactly right, Francis. Uh, the FY22 budget will provide signposts as to the direction that the Biden administration is heading um, for their defense strategy. So it'll give us some indication of where they will change um, from the previous administration. But really, realistically, we won't see a fully informed budget fully informed by the Biden team's strategy until further along down the road. That being said, um, there are some important things that we can look at in FY22, the shipbuilding plan, for example, to see how that 
uh, actually departs from the Trump administration's plan that it, they released in December. That'll be a significant area. And whether also the, the Biden team makes changes to Army and Strength uh, and, and the F-35 program, those are a few areas that I'm going to be watching out for. We have a couple of minutes left, Seamus. The, uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the program, the National Defense Authorization Act markup in the, on the House side won't happen now till after Labor Day. Any implications for the delay in the NDAA markups to the budget process, or do you expect the appropriations committees to continue apace, hold hearings, and, and start to consider what they're willing to do money-wise, budget-wise? Ultimately, um with the budget coming out next week, it will be the latest submission uh, of the budget request since the budget process began and required a request uh, beginning in the 1920s. So that being said, markup for the appropriations bills is going to be delayed. Um, but we have to keep in mind that Congress has a full plate on their hands with an infrastructure package uh, as well as nominations for key uh, for key administration posts. So I don't think we should be surprised at all to see uh, to see DOD start under a continuing resolution this fall. Um, about 30 seconds left. I want to go back to your piece uh, in the time that we have left. Is there a way to change thinking across the defense uh, and national security space in Washington to move people away from the idea of the rule of thirds other than just talking about it the way that you are, Seamus? I think ultimately with the new challenges that are facing the, the defense enterprise in the U.S., it may be time for a new roles and missions reviews for the military services and departments. And I think this just makes sense with gray zone challenges that the country is facing, with increasing, with different technology uh, challenges that we're facing. And so it may be time to redivide the roles and missions among the services to eliminate duplication, uh, to eliminate redundancy, and to make sure that we have the most efficient uh, defense enterprise possible. Seamus Daniels, thanks very much as always. Terrific to have you on the show again. Thanks for having me. You can find a link to his piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website too. You get a preview of every one of our newscasts when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.